Listen, if you have ever hated someone, if you have ever harbored anger and bitterness and resentment and hatred toward another person so that you wanted to see them hurt, you're a murderer. That's what John says. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom is continuing his series titled, Not Even One. Take a survey of recorded human history, and you'll find that only about 263 years have been without war. Think of the violence, hatred, and outright evil that has occurred because of the depraved heart of man. And it's the Apostle Paul, a man familiar with violent anger, who presents a condemning picture of the inner heart of man, a heart that, aside from the gospel and the transformative work of God it entails, is predisposed towards violent anger that flows from words to action. Friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. Several months ago, I read one of the most tragic books that I have ever read. In fact, it's a book that when it was published, literally rocked an entire nation. It's entitled Neighbors, an ominous title once you know the contents of the book. Neighbors, written by Jan Gross. It's a true story, pieced together from historical records of what happened in a small Polish town called Jedwabna. Jedwabna was a town of, a, of about 3,000 citizens. About half of the citizens were Polish and about half of them were Jewish. These people had lived as neighbors for their entire lives, as had their ancestors before them for more than 200 years. But all of that changed on a day in 1941 when the Nazis came to town. The Nazis took over the town, not in force, not in mass, just a few men rode into town to claim it for Nazi Germany. But shortly after they arrived, they gave simply permission to the Polish leadership of the town to kill the Jews who lived there and to take their property. On July 10th, 1941, just over two weeks after the Nazis gave their permission to the Polish leadership of the town, the townspeople, incited by others who came from nearby towns, murdered the Jews who lived in Jedwabna. In fact, the estimates range between, at the most conservative, 350 Jews were burned alive in a barn in town that day, up to as many as 1,600 Jews were killed. And these people were not killed by the Nazis. This is what has come to light. It's not that the Nazis showed up in force and and took the life of these Jewish people. Instead, these people were killed by their own neighbors, simply receiving permission to do so from Nazi Germany. It's a tragic story, but it's a story of human depravity at its worst. Although, obviously, that is an extreme example of human depravity, it is nevertheless true that wherever human beings go, they leave broken and shattered human relationships in their wake. That's a perfect reflection of human depravity. And it's the powerful lesson that we come to in the next part of Romans 3 this morning. 
Let me read for you again the paragraph that we're studying as we make our way through Paul's letter to the Roman churches. Romans chapter 3, we're looking at the paragraph that begins in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is Paul's summary indictment, not merely of the Gentiles as in chapter 1, or the Jews in the in chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 3, but rather here, a summary indictment of all humanity. Now, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, the very next paragraph, Paul is going to explain the heart of the gospel, which is justification by faith alone. But here, as he wraps up the first portion of this letter, he shows us why salvation must be by grace alone, through faith alone, based on the work of Christ alone. And the reason is simple. It's because all of us utterly lack personal righteousness. We have nothing that God would approve of when we stand before him at the final day of judgment. Our only hope is for God to act in grace, for him to take the initiative, for him to make us right with himself when we deserve only his wrath and his eternal punishment, when we deserve to be separated from him and from all good forever. You see, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, strips away all hope in ourselves. And frankly, all hope in anyone but Jesus Christ. And that's the point. Now, as we've noted, Paul begins this section with what I've called the formal indictment of man's depravity. Verse 9, what then? Are we Christians somehow inherently better than everyone I've indicted so far? Not at all, he says. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks comprehensively are all under sin. There are no exceptions. You see, Paul here summarizes what he's written so far in this letter as a formal indictment. See the word charged? He says, I am making a formal indictment that all human beings are under sin. Now, having laid out that indictment, Paul proceeds, or proceeds secondly, I should say, to present the biblical evidence for man's depravity. This is in verses 10 to 18. Here, he introduces the proof, the proof from Scripture that all men are under sin with that familiar 
expression, verse 10, as it is written. And the verses that follow, as you can see from the all caps in your Bible, verses 10 to 18, this section consists entirely of quotes from seven different Old Testament passages. The biblical evidence that he presents begins with a summary of depravity, a summary statement. Notice verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. This is a summary of our condition, of our state. The word righteous simply means to conform to a standard. Not one person except our Lord Jesus Christ has ever met God's standard. That's what Paul is saying. That's what the Old Testament writer was saying. Now, Paul next uses a string of Old Testament references. Having given us that overarching summary of our condition, he uses a string of references to show us the depth of human depravity in verses 11 to 17. You see, sin and depravity produce devastating results in our lives. We have, as verse 11 points out, darkened minds. There is none who understands. We have enslaved wills. There is none who seeks for God. We have, according to verse 12, rebellious lifestyles. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. All of us have turned aside from the path that God has set out for us to walk, and we've turned to our own way. We've pursued our own path. Rebellious lifestyles. Fourthly, We engage in sinful behavior. Notice verse 12 adds the end. There is none who who does, that is who practices good. There is not even one. Now last week we looked at a fifth illustration of the depth of our depravity and that has to do with our toxic speech. In verses 13 and 14, Paul points out that our words reveal the decay and death that's in our hearts. Verse 13 says, their throat is an open grave. What comes out of our mouths is a perfect mirror and reflection of the decay and death that is within our souls. Our words are also filled with deceit. Verse 13 says, with their tongues, they keep on deceiving. They lie. Human beings lie. They deceive. They distort the truth. They use the truth to to mislead in order to gain their own advantage. They flatter all sorts of ways to either contradict the truth or to give half-truths or to use the real truth to mislead. They keep on deceiving. Our words kill and destroy. The poison of asps is under their lips. Paul says, in the same way that a a venomous snake strikes its victim and injects its poison, in the same way when fallen human beings speak, they inject poison with their words into the lives of others, poison that eventually kills and destroys. And the end of verse, or excuse me, verse 14 says that our words, our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's our toxic speech. Now, in the text that we come to this morning, man's toxic speech spills out. It spills over into angry, destructive acts. The sixth expression of the depth of our depravity here in this passage we'll call destructive relationships. Destructive relationships. This is in verses 15 
to 17. Now, before we look at these verses together, let me set the biblical context for you. I hope you understand that you were made for relationship. You were made for relationship. We were not created to be an island. Instead, part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to be made for relationship. Think about this for a moment. The members of the Trinity have for eternity enjoyed among themselves perfect, loving, edifying, gracious relationship. You see this illustrated, by the way, in the way Jesus, as a human being, interacts with his Father. This is the same type of communion and fellowship that Jesus in his, in his deity enjoyed with the Father forever. Relationship. We were made to reflect that perfect relationship in our human relationships. Tragically, one of the primary ways that our fallenness expresses itself is that we begin to act in ways that damage, maim, and eventually destroy our relationships. I mean, that's certainly true and obvious of our relationship with God, right? I mean, what's the very first thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned? They hid from the second person of the Trinity. They hid from the one with whom they had enjoyed wonderful communion in the, in the garden, in the cool of the day. They ran and hid. This is how Sin affects our relationship with God. We are dead to God, as Paul puts it. We hide, we flee, or in the words here in Romans 3, we don't seek him. But sin doesn't just destroy our relationship with God. Sin also injects misery and destruction into every human relationship. Do you realize that the first casualties of sin in Scripture are relationship? human relationship. Go back to Genesis for a moment. Let me show you this. Genesis chapter 2 verse 25, there's a description of the relationship Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. There was an openness. There was, there was a, a communion between them that nothing came between. That's the idea of that text. They weren't shielding themselves from each other. There was a a physical openness that mirrored the spiritual openness that existed between them. But sin destroyed the relationship of marriage. Turn over to chapter 3 and notice verse 7. Once they sinned, it says, The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They not only hid themselves from God, but they began to hide themselves from each other. And the physical clothes merely represent the spiritual distance that's now growing. You see it pour out in verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave me, God, she's the one who gave me from the tree and I ate. It's her fault. Blame shifting began and has continued in art form until our day. Sin also destroyed not only the relationship in marriage, but sin destroyed the relationship within family. Notice chapter 4, verse 5. You remember the story of Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. They presented offerings. They didn't, Cain didn't present his offering in the way God had prescribed. And so verse 5 says, for Cain and for his offering, God had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Look down at verse 8. 
Here was the effect on the human relationship. Cain told Abel, his brother, about his conversation with God. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now, folks, there's only one family on the planet. There are only two kids. And one of them kills the other. What could be more a better illustration, a more appropriate illustration of the reality of the destructive power of sin in family relationships than that. But the destruction spread to relationships in society. Turn to chapter 4. In verse 19, we meet the first polygamist, a man named Lamech, who took to himself two wives. And you see the destruction that wreaks in the Old Testament. Our Lord said it was never intended to be this way supposed to be one man, one woman for life, but he takes two wives, but he also writes a poem. This is the second poem in human history, and it's about revenge. Verse 23, he says, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. You see the sin that destroys relationship begin, begin filtering out outside the family, outside of marriage, and destroying other relationships as well. And eventually, sin spread its devastation across all the relationships on the planet. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with what? Violence. You see what sin does. Sin destroys. Now, go back to Romans chapter 3 because it is sin's destructive power in relationships that Paul addresses next in Romans chapter 3. Let me read for you the the three lines, three verses, three simple lines of poetry that present this idea in Paul's writing here. Notice verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. Now in these three verses, Paul quotes the Septuagint translation of one Old Testament passage. It's Isaiah 59 verses 7 through 8. It's a passage that targets unbelievers in Israel. And so it certainly works for Isaiah as he presents his case in context, but it also works for Paul to use these verses to demonstrate that that sin doesn't merely destroy our relationship with God and even our own soul, tragically, the sin within our hearts also leaks out and it infects and it destroys all human relationships, even those that are the most precious to us. Now, Paul here, in quoting Isaiah, identifies in these verses three reasons behind our destructive relationships, three reasons behind this destruction that accompanies human beings without Christ. There is, first of all, within us, the first reason, there is within us a predisposition to violent anger. Notice verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. The reference to feed here is is probably a sort of Hebrew idiom. It's an allusion to walking, which in in the Hebrew way of thinking talks about the habitual pattern of one's life. 
In other words, this, this violent anger is a constant problem. And notice it's not just a constant problem that manifests itself, but it's one that human beings get to quickly, eagerly, by swift. Isaiah means that humans are quick to walk in the path of violent anger. Their feet are swift to pursue this. It's not like human beings get angry or use violence as a sort of last resort. Instead, Paul says, they become violently angry with the slightest provocation. Proverbs 1, verse 16, For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. By the way, God hates this. Proverbs 6.18 says, God hates a heart that devises wicked plans and feet that run rapidly to evil. Now, this predisposition to angry violence manifests itself, shows itself in a variety of ways in our world. Let me just give you a little list. First of all, obviously, it shows itself in the reality of war. Our planet is filled with war. Historians Will and Ariel Durant, in their book, The Lessons of History, write this, War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. Think about that for a moment. In 3,500 years of recorded history, as historians look back, they only find 268 years when there wasn't a war raging, and that's based solely on what we know. Historians estimate, now think about this with me, historians estimate that since the time of Christ, 2,000 years, there have been almost 15,000 wars. As they've tried to reproduce how many casualties have come from all of the wars of human history, all the ones that are recorded for us, historians estimate that it was likely a billion plus a billion people have been killed in the context of war. Close to 150 million people died in just the wars of the 20th century. Right now, as you sit here this morning, there are 15 wars raging on this planet in which more than a thousand people every year are dying. And if you lower that threshold, if you take into account those wars where fewer than a thousand people die every year, There are 35 wars raging right now on this planet. We can also see man's propensity to violent anger in murder. The murder, the taking of another life interpersonally. According to the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, in the year 2012, which is the latest, the most recent year available, just here in the U.S., there were almost 15,000 murders in a single year. And and the tragic part about that, you read about this in the newspaper, often it's for nothing. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, in addition to war and to murder, there are also, of course, physical acts of violence. Again, the FBI report states that in 2012, here in the U.S., there were nearly eight million people who were the victims of violent crimes. And that's only the ones that were reported. Five million cases of assault, one million cases of aggravated assault, and two million cases of domestic violence. 
We are also guilty, however, of being swift to shed blood if we do none of those things, but we simply harbor hatred in the heart. Listen to the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Everyone, no exceptions, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And he goes on to say, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Listen, if you have ever hated someone, if you have ever harbored anger and bitterness and resentment and hatred toward another person so that you wanted to see them hurt, you're a murderer. That's what John says. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series titled, Not Even One. Tom will have part eight for you on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.